Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome everybody. Hello. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I'm your host. Uh, we've got uh, an interesting political week to review here in the U.S., uh, so let's get right into it without any further ado. Um, it, it has been a busy, busy political week here in the U.S. Uh, let's start off with uh, the former president who received a verdict handed down uh, in the New York uh, state corruption case uh, involving uh, his uh, business records, tax evasion, and uh artificially inflating and deflating the value of his properties and, and other charges. Uh, the judge in that case uh, handed down a finding of uh, guilty if, of committing fraud. Uh, this case was handled uh, by the judge as both parties had requested what's known as summary judgment. That is where the details are handed over to a judge and that judge is asked to uh, make or, or, or uh, come back with a verdict based on the evidence presented. Well, you know, the expectation from Donald Trump's side of the equation was that the judge would review the evidence and uh, not find any uh, cause for a verdict and thereby throw it out. Uh, he and everyone else was surprised when uh, the judge in that case in New York State came back with a finding that, in fact, uh, Donald Trump and his organization did perpetrate a fraud uh, through reevaluating and revaluing his properties depending on uh, what uh, financial uh, process he was going through. In a nutshell, uh, what would happen, in case you somehow hadn't followed the case, uh, was that when uh, Donald Trump needed to uh, obtain a bank loan and would use his properties as collateral, uh, he would routinely inflate their value, uh, sometimes by as much as 200% or more, uh, in order to uh, improve his uh, presentation for the loan. When it come came time to pay taxes on those properties, uh, his organization would routinely devalue his properties. Uh, and a as a result of these actions, uh, the judge found him uh, guilty of fraud. And, and when I say him, he found the organization of which he's the head guilty of fraud and um, possibly uh, in violation of as much as a quarter of a billion dollars uh, in uh, misstated uh, revenue or, or funds and so forth. According to an article in Politico and other sources uh, that was posted on the 26th, um, a state judge in, on Tuesday found Donald Trump and his company liable for fraud for inflating his net worth in order to deceive banks and insurers, resolving one of the key claims in a civil fraud lawsuit brought by New York State Attorney General just days before a trial is set to start. By the way, that trial is going to happen and it will start, uh, actually, uh, it's slated to start um, the 3rd, nope, the 2nd uh, of October, which is Monday. And uh, by the time this airs, that trial will already be underway. Uh, New York Attorney General Tish James, uh, according to the article, has submitted, quote, conclusive evidence that the former president and his co-defendants overvalued their assets by between $812 million and $2.2 billion from the years 2014 to 21. And uh, the judge in the case, Arthur Angoron wrote in the court filing, even in the world of high finance, this court cannot endorse a proposition that finds a misstatement of at least $812 million to be immaterial. The outcome of uh, this case, once it is concluded, uh, one of the things that the judge ordered in his ruling 
was that he canceled the business certificates of all of the defendants, which includes the Trump Organization itself and numerous LLCs connected to the company, as well as the business certificates of any entity, quote, controlled or beneficially owned by Trump, his adult sons, the Trump Organization's former chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, and company executive, Jeffrey McConney. So, you know, in, in the bottom line of this, basically, uh, the business certificates uh, have been, you know, voided. That means that Donald Trump, uh, his uh, eldest sons um, and daughter uh, are precluded from doing business anywhere in the state of New York. So, you know, that was a huge uh, bombshell that dropped on the Trump team. Uh, so it, we will see uh, after the expected appeals uh, run their course, should the verdict stand, um, Donald Trump's uh, business entities in the uh, state of New York and perhaps others will be uh, sold out from under him. He will have to divest himself of all of his business activities in the state of New York. The article concludes uh, with uh, the lawsuit accuses Trump and the other defendants of creating more than 200 misleading evaluations of the company's finances as well as other forms of misrepresentation and it seeks $250 million in damages and a lifetime bar on the Trumps from serving as officers uh, or directors in any New York companies. Engeron's ruling didn't resolve all of the claims in Attorney General James's lawsuit, with the judge saying there are disputed factual issues related to these claims that require a trial. Uh, the judge also granted the Attorney General's request to sanction Trump's lawyers, or ordering that each of them pay a $7,500 penalty. So the, the bottom line is that um, Donald Trump, uh, his sons, Donald Jr. and Eric and daughter Ivanka, along with Weisselberg and their business associate, uh, will effectively be barred from doing business in the state of New York um, for life. So we will keep on top of that and let you know what happens as the trial concludes. And, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, there will be an appeal of the verdict uh, should it go against Trump. This, of course, is in addition to the other legal matters uh, circling around the former president, uh, including uh, four uh, federal uh, charges uh, in New York and in Georgia. Uh, the uh, second defamation lawsuit filed by E. Jean Carroll against the former president and, you know, a, a host of other lesser charges filed uh, in New York and other states that all uh, circle around activities of the former president and his associates. So the uh, first shot across the bow uh, in the New York uh, business fraud case uh, has been fired. Uh, the Trump Organization and Donald Trump have been found guilty of fraud. Uh, a trial uh, on the details of that and to determine the uh, monetary penalty uh, starts Monday, October 2nd. So we will see how that turns out. Uh, in other news and in other locations, uh, down in our uh, favorite state of Florida, the uh, governor there, Mr. DeSantis, uh, an article uh, that came out of the Associated Press uh, this week uh, out of Tallahassee, Florida, cites that DeSantis purpose purposely dismantled a black congressional district, uh, a, and that's from attorney as the trial over the Florida uh, district map begins. Uh, the article uh, goes on to say, uh, on the same day, <clears throat> excuse me, on the same day, Alabama black voters scored a victory in the U.S. Supreme Court, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, over a, f uh, a federal trial opened in Florida 
in which lawyers say Republican Governor Ron DeSantis violated the U.S. Constitution by deliberately dismantling a congressional district that favored black candidates. Uh, and it's part of several lawsuits, or it's one of several lawsuits around the country that are challenging Republican-drawn maps they say are gerrymandered to diminish the ability of black voters to select a candidate of their choice. If successful, the lawsuit could help Democrats as they try to regain control of the House. Uh, now, the case in Florida is focused on uh, a district that stretched more than 200 miles to connect black voters in Jacksonville and in the ma majority black ca county of uh, Gadsden, about 200 miles to the west. DeSantis vetoed maps the legislature drew, which would have preserved a black district and forced the legislature to approve one his staff drew. Uh, you know, and the resulting map uh, that helped Republicans earn a majority in the House and left black voters in North Florida with only white representation in Washington. Uh, the uh, Common Cause uh, Florida and the Florida branch of the NAACP and fair districts are now suing to have that map thrown out. Uh, as the Republican legislature debated a map that would have kept the black performing district in North uh, Florida, DeSantis used social media to say it would be DOA if passed. After vetoing the map, uh, DeSantis directed aide Alex Kelly to draw a new one and submit it to the legislature, which approved it in a special session with no changes. So, as in Alabama, and as I said, we're going to talk about that uh, in, a, in a minute. Uh, again, it's uh, another instance of Republicans using their gerrymandered majorities in order to disenfranchise uh, and, uh, and uh, dilute the votes of blacks and other minorities in their states uh, to help keep Republicans in control of those states regardless of how the vote turns out. Uh, we talked about the Alabama situation on last week's podcast and to quickly recap that um, Alabama has a 27 percent uh, black population and yet there is only currently according to the existing map uh, that's uh, in contention there's only one district uh, representing that constituency. Uh, the districts were challenged uh, by uh, organizations in the state. Uh, those challenges went through the court all the way up to the Supreme Court, which uh, upheld a lower court verdict that the districts in Alabama are not constitutionally representative and need to be redrawn. Uh, to at least uh, two districts, one that would be uh, a black district and a second one that would have a majority uh, black population as part of them in order to effectively represent uh, the black constituency in the state of Alabama. So we are at the point where the state of Alabama uh, redrew the map, but basically ignored the instructions from uh, the appeals court uh, as upheld by the Supreme Court and drew another set of districts, one of which was uh, a black district and the other was a majority district. And that defied the order that had been issued. So the uh, Supreme Court throughout the districts that were resubmitted and instructed the state to draw new districts that met the guidelines they had set forth. So that got us to where we are right now, that the districts in Alabama uh, are to be redrawn and reflect the population breakdown of the state and be in effect in time for the 2024 election a uh, little more than one year from now. In an article that came out on the busy news day of Tuesday the 26th, 
uh, and this was in uh, Politico, uh, the uh, headline uh, cites that a federal court will choose a map that will likely result in an additional black member of Congress uh, coming from Alabama. The article uh, goes in to say, uh, the Supreme Court on Tuesday handed down a win to Democrats by rejecting Alabama's request to use a congressional map drawn by the Republican-controlled legislature. Instead, the Supreme Court declined to touch a lower court's ruling overturning that map for likely violating the Voting Rights Act. The court-driven map-making process happening now will likely result in uh, Alabama adding an additional black uh, and Democratic member of Congress. Lowell, the lower federal court earlier this month threw out the state's new map passed earlier this year after the Republican-controlled state legislature essentially ignored its order to draw two House districts where black voters could elect a candidate of their choosing. Alabama had appealed that decision. But the Supreme Court on Tuesday rejected Alabama's request to step in and block the ruling, leaving intact the decision forcing the map to uh, be redrawn. So uh, Alabama, as a result, uh, had a court-appointed special master uh, who oversaw the redrawing of the maps, and he's narrowed down the list to three proposals, each of which would create a second majority or near-majority black district with further hearings scheduled uh, for uh, later this week. Um, the, in, in a quote, Alabama's open defiance of the Voting Rights Act stops today. Abha Khanna, a prominent Democratic attorney who represented one of the plaintiffs, said in a statement, quote, while we hope that yet another federal court order will prompt Alabama to rethink their dogged resistance to providing equal political opportunities to black Alabamians, we look forward to ensuring relief for voters through the court-ordered remedial redistricting process with or without the state's cooperation. So this is, and I spoke to this in last week's podcast, uh, the, the attitude in the uh, Republican Party seems to fall along the lines of because we have the majority in these states uh, due in part to our radical gerrymandering of these states and their voting districts, uh, we can do whatever we want to do uh, because we're in charge. Well, that it has, uh, over the past uh, couple of years, uh, come under fire and in conflict with rulings from uh, courts at every level, up to and including the Supreme Court, where you know these uh, overreaches of authority have been challenged and knocked down. And the Alabama case is just the latest example. Uh, what we're also seeing is uh, you know, a similar case happening in Florida uh, where you know, Governor DeSantis uh, has thrown out a black district in the north, as I just talked about. Uh, and you know, we're seeing similar things that uh, will be happening in other states that you know we seem to frequently talk about here on this program including you know georgia and texas and louisiana uh, and you know the the upshot is that you know slowly and and methodically uh the the justice system seems to be uh re restoring the balance uh to the equitable allocation of uh, voting resources in these states, even so much as going over their objections or uh, casting their objections aside. So, you know, this is just another example of how, you know, the, the process does seem to work, albeit it works slowly. The next phase of how this process needs to happen, and we're going to talk about that uh, in, in a little bit of detail uh, toward the end of the second segment is, you know, the, the exercise of uh, voting power by bringing you know, as many 
and, and getting as many people registered to vote and actively participating in the voting process in these states in order to overwhelm these uh, gerrymandered majorities. Uh, the, the way you do that is, you know, you flood the zone with a whole lot of registered voters who actively get out and vote their conscience. Uh, so, you know, we will continue to talk about that and bring that uh, strategy forward and flush it out on this program uh, every episode that that we can. So uh, getting back to Alabama, uh, Alabama has seven congressional districts, by the way. Uh, the maps used in the 2022 midterms uh, had just one majority black district despite the state's population, as I mentioned, being about 27% black. Uh, Republicans are argued that they were complying with the law with their redraw, saying the challengers did not prove the new maps violated the Voting Rights Act and that they weren't compelled to draw a second majority black district despite the Supreme Court's ruling, hence that ignoring of the orders from the court. Um, so, you know, the, the three-judge uh, three panel in the lower court uh, wrote in its argument that they were, quote, deeply troubled that lawmakers hadn't drawn two majority black districts when given an opportunity to do so, striking down that new map earlier this month and kicking the process to court-appointed experts. So the, the idea here is, you know, the... The state uh, said, you know, we complied with the order and the courts were like, -uh, no, you didn't. Uh, you, you didn't read the details. You didn't read all the words. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, again, as I mentioned, it's part of a bigger legal fight over redistricting um, that, con that likely will control uh, or will influence who controls the House uh, after next year's election even more so than the uh, the the pressure on you know independent progressive democratic voters uh, to remove the Republicans uh, for you know the the many uh, uh, column transgressions that have have followed the uh, Republican process over the years uh, and, you know, we're going to touch more on that in the second half uh, when we talk about the, the other major news item uh, out of this week. Um, so, you know, several other cases in the, st in the South, uh, particularly Georgia, Louisiana, uh, are ongoing. So we will see what the outcomes of those two cases are, as well as cases in Texas. Uh, and, and again, the net result could end up being that given the, the redraw of these districts, uh, the control of the House uh, could uh, more likely swing to Democratic control, even if everything else remains the same, as the Republicans only have a four-seat majority in the uh, lower chamber in the uh, federal system. So we will see what happens with those, and we'll bring you those details as well. You know, and you know, just I can't stress enough, and, and uh, as I just mentioned, uh, the remedy for these uh, Republican power plays in these uh, gerrymandered states is for uh, a, a flooding the zone in uh, terms of non-Republican voters. And, you know, that, as I said, includes, you know, Democrats, independents, and moderate uh, uh, Republicans who are tired of the games that are being played uh, in our state and federal political system. And it shouldn't be lost on anybody that uh, these type of uh, political uh, abuses all stem from the the past activities uh, that have given these uh, false majorities to Republicans uh, in these states, whether it's, you know, the number of uh, seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, 
or the number of uh, states controlled by Republican legislatures and governors and so forth. Uh, this arrogance of we can do this because we're in charge uh, is all part and parcel of that. And the way that we break that, uh, that situation is through you know, massive numbers of voters getting in and voting in uh, representation that will, A, reflect more accurately the demographic makeup of the state uh, in question, and B, uh, reflect the political uh, desires of uh, those constituents uh, equally. So, you know, if, uh, for example, uh, a state is, you know, 50-50 uh, state, yet the uh, Republicans have, you know, 60 or 70 percent of the the seats in the House and Senate in those states, uh, that's an imbalance that is best corrected by you know an, an overwhelming flooding of the zone uh, by the voters. So, as always, you know the the mantra is get registered, uh, get active, keep an eye on your voter registration to make sure that it stays in effect. Uh, talk to your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, everybody in your circle, and make sure that they are doing the same. And then on election day, whether it's a local election, a state election, or the, the federal elections uh, next November, uh, let's make sure that we get that vote out and that we get that vote counted. And, you know, talk to your representatives. We say this so much on this show, it's, it's, um, I, I probably should just record it and play it like a public service announcement. Uh, we say this so much on this show that we need to be in constant communication with our elected officials. Number one, we need to let them know that we are watching them. Number two, we need to let them know that uh, our opinions are why they are there. They are there to represent us. Uh, they work for us, not the other way around. And they need to do what we are instructing them to do. Otherwise, we will exercise our franchise and vote them out of office. So, you know, we need to get on our game so that we can keep them on their game. All right. With that, let's take our break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get into the other big news story of this past week. And, of course, that was or the battle over the, um, the budget. So you're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. We'll be right back after this break. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your healthcare provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. All right, so as we continue with uh, the big hits, politically speaking, of the last week, uh, it's clear that uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, story of the week was the impending government shutdown that was slated to occur at uh, midnight on uh, September 30th into October 1st of the federal government uh, because the uh, funding process had not been completed and there was uh, intra-party bickering in the Republican side of the uh, U.S. House and uh, it looked for a while like uh, we were going to be facing a government shutdown as of uh, Sunday, October 1st, which is the start of the federal fiscal year. Uh, 
what happened, uh, what ended up transpiring, was that uh, roughly about 45 minutes before uh, the stroke of midnight, when uh, the government would have been required to shut down, uh, President Biden signed uh, the stopgap bill uh, to avert the shutdown uh, that was passed by Congress in a furious uh, group of sessions held on uh, Saturday. Uh, the House, uh, I'm sorry, the Senate passed the measure uh, to uh, temporarily fund the government, uh, what's known as a continuing resolution, or CR, uh, for 45 days or until roughly, uh, I believe, November 17th. And that was based on the fact that the House, earlier in the day, had reversed course uh, away from their intended uh, blockade of the uh, continuing resolution uh, agreement uh, creating a, a firestorm of uh, both controversy and political infighting, particularly in the Republican Party. Uh, so what happened was uh, originally uh, Kevin McCarthy and his right-wing uh, extreme faction of the Republican Party were saying they were not going to pass any funding uh, for the government as long as it contained uh, both uh, or as it didn't contain uh, funding for the border and as long as it contained uh, continued funding for the war in Ukraine. So, you know, the, the upshot was that uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, reached across the aisle and uh, obtained uh, Democratic votes to assist him with getting the resolution passed. Now, that action uh, may trigger some other reactions, which we'll talk about in a minute. But to stay on track with the story, uh, again, in bipartisan fashion, uh, according to a statement from uh, President Biden at about 11.15, uh, 11.20, uh, Saturday night, uh, quote, tonight, bipartisan majorities in the House and Senate voted to keep the government open, preventing an unnecessary crisis that would have inflicted needless pain on millions of hardworking Americans. Uh, close quote, Biden said in his statement. He also slammed House Republicans for the last minute scramble, adding, quote, we never should have been in this position in the first place, end quote. Now, as I mentioned, uh, this measure is only a temporary measure and will keep the government open only through November 17th. Uh, it does include natural disaster aid, but it does not include any additional funding for Ukraine or border security. It also includes a measure to keep the Federal Aviation Administration operational. So as a result of that, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced the stopgap proposal on Saturday morning, a move that came after weeks of infighting among House Republicans and a failed effort to pass a GOP stopgap bill in the chamber. The bill passed uh, the House with an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote. Now, this decision to put a bill on the floor uh, that would win support from Democrats could put his speakership at risk as hardline conservatives continue to threaten a vote to oust him from the top House leadership post. Uh, McCarthy, however, was defiant after the vote, daring his detractors to try and push him out, as he argued he did what was needed to govern effectively. A uh, quote from McCarthy says, If someone wants to make a motion against me, bring it. McCarthy told uh, CNN's Manu Raju at a press conference, Quote, there has to be an adult in the room. I am going to govern with what's best for this country, end quote. Uh, he had uh, suffered a high-profile defeat on Friday when the House failed to advance a last-ditch GOP stopgap bill, ramping up the pressure on him to decide to, uh, whether or not to try to reach across the aisle to work with Democrats to keep the government open, even if it would risk a backlash from conservatives. So, as you may recall, in the, uh, the, 
the battle for McCarthy to win the speakership back in January at the start of the session, he made a bunch of concessions and promises to this uh, right wing uh, group, uh, including the Freedom Caucus and members of uh, MAGA, uh, in order to gain their votes to get him to 218 uh, to take over as uh, Speaker of the House uh, uh, from uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And ever since then, the uh, those conservatives, those right wing, um, the MAGA conservatives, the Freedom Caucus, have been holding that over his head uh, to try and uh, force or coerce or, you know, bludgeon him to do what they want to do, uh, irregardless of what the majority of the Republican uh, controlling caucus in the House has wanted. So, you know, the, the, uh, the party has, or at least that wing of the party, has been very outspoken in their criticism of his efforts in order to, as he says, govern um, and, you know, do what's best for the country. Uh, this became evident in the negotiations uh, earlier this year to avoid a credit default where uh, McCarthy worked out a deal with President Biden on, you know, getting uh, the, the resolutions passed to avoid the credit default uh, over the objections of this uh, conservative uh, extreme right wing of his party. And truthfully, they have never let him forget that. Uh, so uh, what transpired was uh, this dangerous game of brinksmanship between um, the right wing of the Republican caucus and you know the Democrats and the more moderate side of the Republican Party in order to uh, get a uh, bill passed that would either um, you know, or a group of bills passed that would either fund the government for the next fiscal year or a stopgap bill such as the one passed, which would buy them time to work out the negotiations they need in order for those bills uh, to get uh, processed and passed through the House, submitted to the Senate, and ultimately to the President for his signature. Now, by way of background, Every year, there are uh, roughly 12 uh, different uh, funding appropriations bills that historically have been passed with you know, little fanfare and, and little argument and passed with bi uh, bipartisan majorities uh, each year. It's almost a kind of a mechanical thing that, you know, the, as the fiscal year comes to a close, the 12 appropriations bills are... Uh, you know, put together, approved in their, their respective committees, and submitted to the full House for their vote, which they, as I said, in, in bipartisan manner would generally uh, pass overwhelmingly. Uh, they would go on to the Senate, where they would be reviewed uh, if there were changes needed to particular bills. Those changes would be made, and they'd be sent to conference committee to iron out the details and then resubmitted through the House to the Senate. Ultimately, uh, the, uh, the package which would fund you know, the government uh, would come to the president's desk and he would sign off on it and everything would proceed along smoothly. Uh, there have been a couple occasions where uh, that process has not worked out smoothly. Uh, and what ends up happening is the end of the fiscal year comes, which means that's the end of the legal uh, authority for the government to pay for its operations. And there would be uh, what has become referred to as a government shutdown. Now, the real pain of a, a government shutdown, and, and again, we talked about this last week uh, on the podcast is that it would require uh, the, the stopping of payment for many different key functions of government, um, nutrition programs for school children, uh, Medicaid uh, and Social Security checks uh, could be impacted, 
the military would, uh, even though they are required to stay on duty, would be forced to work without paycheck, as would many other uh, uh, essential federal agencies. There would be, you know, massive layoffs of non-essential government workers. Uh, you know, many hundreds of thousands of government employees would be furloughed home until a resolution was occurred, and and so on and so forth. There, there's a list of the things that would be impacted. Uh, but uh, the bottom line of all of that is that it would impact and and harm, uh, you know, the American people, us. You know, if if we're not able to to get you know those necessary services uh, from the more minor things such as uh, federal parks and museums being shut down, to the more major things uh, as the training program for FAA um, air traffic controllers. Uh, again, you know the the border patrol, other essential agencies that are out there to keep us uh, protected and safe would be forced uh, to work without pay because they are essential workers. Now granted, uh, some of these workers would receive you know back pay once the budget was resolved, uh, so they would be made whole. However, uh, the pain comes in with how long these shutdowns would last. So we avoided one this time. The last time there was a government shutdown was during the Trump administration, and that one lasted 35 days, a month. So for a month, you know, government workers were furloughed home. Uh, you know, military, uh, law, federal law enforcement, uh, and, and other agencies worked without pay. And, you know, air traffic controllers worked without pay. Uh, Social Security checks uh, were delayed. And, you know, Medicare services uh, were impacted. No new applications were processed. A whole range of things occurred. Uh, we had another one of these during the Obama administration where the, uh, the Tea Party uh, ended up shutting down the government and, and so forth. Uh, some things that, that happen in common with this are that uh, these shutdowns typically always were instigated by Republicans. Uh, now, had a shutdown occurred, you know, this past week, and by the way, it doesn't mean that we're out of the woods on this. It just means that we won't hit this problem until the middle of November. Um, you know, this would be a, a shutdown under a Democratic administration, which is away from the norm of what these are. If you uh, Google, you know, federal government shutdowns, and look at the list, you will see that by and large, um, these occur uh, under Republican administrations. So, you know, dig into that if you want to understand the reasoning behind that. Um, but anyway, getting back to what transpired this week. So after many weeks of wrangling about resolving um, the budget process, uh, and coming down to the final day of the fiscal year, um, the House uh, came forward and passed its version of a shutdown plan in response to the Senate's proposal, which had been passed uh, uh, a day or two earlier than that. Uh, and the, the reconciliation of the two led to the agreement that got us the uh, the continuing resolution, the CR, uh, to carry uh, paying for government services through the middle of November. And again, you know, if, if nothing's done between now and then, we will dance this dance yet again. So a couple of things that, you know, need to uh, be aware of is that having this stopgap measure does not mean we're out of the woods. It just means that the proverbial can has been kicked down the road yet again, and you know we don't have a resolution for this. Now, the Republicans have known that this deadline was coming since the first day of the current congressional session. 
uh, everybody knows at the end of the fiscal year is September 30th. So, you know, wisdom would lead one to think that, you know, we should plan that we need to have all of these things ironed out and ready to go, you know, well ahead of this deadline so that, you know, on the changeover to the new fiscal year, you know, it's as simple as throwing a switch, everything transfers over, nothing gets interrupted. Uh, We typically do not have that kind of process in this country. Uh, This has been, you know, battles that we have seen uh, almost every year because there's a new budget for every year. Uh, And, you know, just where we can get the details ironed out ahead of the end of the fiscal year is where we get uh, a a smooth crossover uh, with no interruption in funding. But every once in a while, we have one of these issues and so forth. What's different about this time is that it is less being driven by issues politics and more being driven by the politics of the people involved in the process. And by that I mean there were uh, several members of the Freedom Caucus, uh, the MAGA extreme right, that were calling for uh, an outright shutdown of the government, uh, most notably uh, led from the top, by former President Trump, who, you know, tweeted out on his platform that if, you know, if Republicans didn't get everything they wanted, then shut it down. So there was a, a driving force uh, rather than resolving the issue and funding the government. There was a driving force coming from the conservative ultra-right uh, Republican wing to actually go in the opposite direction. To, to monkey wrench it and shut the government down, hold the government of the United States hostage uh, to get the things that they wanted to see uh, funded. Uh, this just continues an ongoing trend that we've seen over the last eight to 10 years of this idea of if, if we don't get what we want, we're going to shut everything down until we do. Uh, we had it with the, we had it with the, uh, the, the, the credit limit crisis. We had it with, um, you know, many other things. We've had it with funding battles for uh, the war in Ukraine. We see this all the time, that this, this approach of, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to take some hostages until we do. Uh, this is something that we the people must change. Uh, we cannot continue to govern Uh, our country to be the the leader of the free world in a country that is continually uh, fighting these internal uh, battles of personality. So, you know, just as as we always say, something to think about. We need to be communicating and letting our politicians know that, you know, this this hostage taking approach, this, uh, you know, managing at the point of a gun, Uh, is is something that cannot stand, that we will not stand for. And if you're going to continue that, Mr. or Ms. elected official, then we are going to vote you out. So for now, uh, the good news is uh, governmental life goes on. Uh, Government workers will still get paid. Uh, Your kids will still uh, receive their uh, school lunches. Head Start programs will continue to be funded. Uh, But again, that is only a temporary fix. Between now and the middle of November, uh, our elected officials need to be working on a a solution for this fiscal year and ostensibly a a working map for how we get this done every year so that we can avoid uh, these type of contentious uh, arguments back and forth. So... We will keep on top of where we are with the budget process for fiscal year, and we will let you know when a suitable solution has been reached. So stay tuned. We'll keep you informed. And on a personal note, um, I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of this childish, I'm going to take my ball and my bat and go home, hold my breath until I turn blue uh, approach that we've seen coming out of a certain segment of the Republican Party 
over the last um, you know 15 years or so. Uh, time has come for you know adults to be put in position. And you know speaking truthfully, I think the uh, the youngest and newest members that I've seen in the House of Representatives uh, are are taking that to heart. They are speaking truth to power and they are holding, you know, the House accountable for what it says and what it does. And I, for one, couldn't be happier with seeing that coming Uh, in in a future podcast. We're going to dive into some of these, uh, you know, Gen Z um, and and, Gen Y Congress people bring them out to uh, introduce you know who they are and what they're what they're standing for and just showcase that you know it is time for the old guard of our political system to begin to transition to the younger people in this country and i for one um, am very pleased to see these young people making these inroads and making the name for themselves Politics, as usual, has got to change uh, or, you know, there's going to be nothing but problems going forward. And our country can't stand to uh, to endure these on an ongoing basis. So stay tuned. More to come on that. And lastly, uh, just so it, you know, want to know, as I often say, it is not just the Republicans who are, you know, the problem children of our political system. Uh, it's just that they are the more visible, the more vocal, uh, and you know they're the ones that we see, and they're also the ones that the media tends to focus on. So we don't hear as many stories uh, coming out of the Democratic side of politics. But every once in a while, uh, one such story will pop to the surface, and that would be uh, what we found out over the course of this week as uh, indictments were announced uh, against uh, U.S. Senator for New Jersey, uh, one of the you know, most powerful Democrats in the country, uh, Senator Bob Menendez, uh, that he's been, and he has been charged with bribery along with his wife and a, a few uh, associates. In a story that I found on The Guardian, but one that has been Uh, somewhat widely covered in the mainstream media. Uh, Again, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez was last week accused with his wife and three Jersey-based businessmen of a staggering range of offenses. Uh, The story uh, struck a blow to the heart of Democratic politics, especially when the Democratic Party is busy trying to convince an increasingly cynical electorate that it is a safe pair of hands for honest American governance. Okay. Uh, according to the charging document, uh, Menendez used his position as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to benefit Egypt in exchange for hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes. And when the uh, investigators, and again, this in- investigation has been ongoing for more than a year, when they uh, searched this house, they found roughly a half million dollars in cash, uh, something like 18 gold bars and a brand new Mercedes in the garage uh, that were all part of the bribes that Menendez and his wife received for uh, influence that they were selling uh, uh, on behalf of Egypt. Um, now, again, the article cites Menendez, who is 69, has pleaded not guilty to conspiracy to commit bribery conspiracy to commit honest services fraud and conspiracy to commit extortion under the color of official right. Um, Wednesday's appearance at a federal courtroom in Manhattan marked an ignominious moment for Menendez, who said that he will not step down and is still planning to run for re-election this coming year or next year in 2024. So, I mean, the article gives some, some history and background to Menendez, um, you know, from his uh, humble beginnings in Union City, New Jersey, uh, son of Cuban immigrants, you know, uh, and again, citing him as the quintessential American story. Um, 
you know, but it, and it goes on to continue. The latest charges are likely to bring an end to that illustrious career. At least 18 Senate Democrats have called for Menendez to resign, along with New Jersey's governor and most of the state's congressmen and women. Um, again, but Menendez says he's fighting, that he's been falsely accused because he is Latino, and he insists that he will not step down. Uh, as to the uh, nearly half million dollars in cash uh, found at his house, uh, Menendez told reporters that he had saved that money over the course of 30 years and kept it in cash, quote, because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. But he has not addressed questioning questions about why some of the money bore the fingerprints and DNA of Fred Davis, a New Jersey real estate developer accused of paying Menendez bribes. So, you know, he's saying that, you know, he stashed this money away uh, over 30 years. Um, but if that's the case, why does it have the fingerprints and DNA of one of his co-defendants? Um, one of the things that he's accused of is uh, influence uh, selling for uh, Egypt. Uh, where he uh, was gathered information on the U.S. Uh, embassy in Egypt in terms of the number of people that worked there, their positions, and so forth, and through uh, his contacts, transferred that information to the government of Egypt. Now, while the uh, staffing at uh, a, an embassy is not a classified secret. It is considered uh, to be sensitive information uh, that is not necessarily meant for uh, public consumption. So Menendez and his wife, who was close friends with uh, a gentleman from Egypt named Wail Hana, uh, who is an Egyptian-American businessman, uh, and according to the indictment, uh, Egypt-born Hana maintained close connections with Egyptian officials and provided uh, the pipeline through which uh, Menendez could get information uh, to the Egyptian government and uh, the pipeline through which money and gifts, including the Mercedes for his wife, uh, came to the Menendezes. Um, so, you know, this, the story outlines this relationship that Menendez and his wife had uh, with providing uh, information uh, to Egypt via their connection with Wail Hana and receiving in return uh, money, uh, checks, gold bars uh, as payment for you know, what they were doing. Um, you know, and it alleges the article uh, cites a meeting held in 2018 uh, where uh, Bob and Nadine Menendez met with Hanna, and based on the result of that meeting, Hanna asked the State Department for staffing information regarding the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. Now, as I said, while this information is not formally classified, it's deemed highly sensitive, the indictment says, because it could, it could pose significant operational security claim claims, uh, concerns, rather, if disclosed to a foreign government. Um, you know, and so Menendez got the information through his uh, contacts on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, transferred that uh, via text uh, to his wife Nadine, who then uh, sent it to uh, her contact, Hana, uh, who forwarded it to an Egyptian government official. So, you know, what what transpired was a series of communications, including such things as requesting three, release of $300 million of U.S. aid to Egypt. So this is uh, unwinding into a tangled web of uh, corruption uh, and, and frankly something that we are not used to seeing on the Democratic side of the political spectrum. Uh, we will dig into this. We will get more information 
we will bring it to you, but you can find it online. It is being widely discussed among the mainstream media. So Republicans ain't the only one playing shady games. Uh, it seems, you know, everybody, and I'm sorry if I'm painting in broad strokes, but it seems like everybody in Washington, D.C. and in government uh, is doing it to some extent or another. So we're going to keep tabs. We're going to keep bringing you what we can. Uh, and if you have questions or comments, please feel free. The email address for the show is, as always, firedupradio at yahoo.com. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you all for listening. I greatly appreciate it. I look forward to bringing you more information on uh, the political machine here in the United States in seven days. Please take care and stay safe. Thank you.